0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. Keegan, I'm going to move this. I like to, I like to walk around a little bit. But before we get there, I want to let you know some information about Connection Sunday. Hopefully, you know the big picture. Uh, Hopefully, you know there's some stuff outside that you can get some information from. But just let me tell you about some details. Uh, Let me uh, point you to one of these, this red uh, card. This is our Connect to Serve card. It will have, uh, this is big tent ministries that we have outside. So things like kids ministry, student ministry, our discipleship ministries, care teams, event teams, stuff like that. Uh, And underneath those big tent ministries, we have some some small tent ministries, right? Uh, And so let me just, uh, as a person on staff at this church, the way that we serve our church body uh, looks differently than it did five years ago because we have different people than five years ago. And so we are uh, in the midst of kind of restructuring, looking at how we can better meet the needs of our community and our church body. And so uh, if there is a need that is not being met, one of the things that we want to do is obviously meet that need. Uh, And so I say that to say, like, we aren't perfect. There are needs that are not being met. But here's the thing. Our job as staff, according to Ephesians 4 and the Apostle Paul, is to equip the saints for ministry. And that's what today is about. It's connecting people to serving opportunities. And with that... We have bribery involved. <laughs> just kidding, kind of. Uh, so you can uh, go to one of these booths, get information about this, and there's five uh, squares right here that you can get punched. All you have to do uh, is just get information. Visit a booth. And once you're done with those things, there's a uh, place where you can put the card in there, somebody will contact you, but more importantly, you can hopefully win a gift card to some great places like the Roost and Jafar's and Honeybean, if you're uh, Green Thumb, like Green Acres, all that fun stuff, all right? So uh, if you have any questions, ask someone, uh, tell them how you are gifted, and when in doubt, get a punch card or a corn dog. all right? That's, that's what today's about, right? So, we're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. Uh, read along with me, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he said to Simon Peter who said to him Lord do you wash my feet And Jesus answered him what I am doing you do not understand now but un- afterward you will understand And Peter said to him you shall never wash my feet And Jesus answered him if I do not wash you you have no share with me And Simon Peter said to him Lord Not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet, he put on an outer garment and resumed his place. And he said to them, Blessed are you if you do them. Humans have a power problem. There is not one square inch of the earth that is not touched by some sort of distortion of power. Much of the unraveling in our culture today is due to the fact that our most trusted institutions, including the church itself, have a power problem issue, people using their status, their platform, their position to abuse and elevate themselves over others. And perhaps no statistic reminds us more graphically of the distortion of power than this, that there are more than 21 million slaves in the world today. Many of them labor under debts of just a few hundred dollars with terrible interest. They labor as brickmakers, as sex slaves, as harvesters, and as domestic servants. Andy Crouch, in his book Playing God, which I would highly recommend to you, speaks about this when he tells a story about his experience with slavery in a foreign country where child slavery is rampant. He says that in this new age of slavery, compared to antebellum slavery, where slaves were thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, today you can buy a child for just a few hundred dollars, in some cases just $50, making them practically disposable. And even though slavery is illegal, thanks to the bribery of police and other power abuse, They often look the other way. Or in some cases, police are called in to beat children, to destroy any imagination of freedom. And Crouch says this, If you want to understand power's dangers, slavery has one advantage. It is a corrupted version of absolute power. In enslavement, one human being asserts unlimited power over another. Ultimately, the owner owns everything, the slave owns nothing. And in this relationship, power is jealously hoarded. Hoarded power. And he goes on to say this, that power is both better and worse than what we can imagine. Because the Bible teaches us that we were created by a powerful God. And as his image bearers, we actually share in some of the power that he created with. Now, we don't have the extent, obviously. But in Genesis 1, when it says, be fruitful and multiply, he gives us power to procreate. When he says, subdue and have dominion over the world, That's power to subdue the earth. So when we make a meal, when we plow a field, when we have the power to think or synthesize information, this is what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God that we share in the capacity for power. And the original design was that the most powerful being would be up here, right? And as humans, we would be fully aligned with him. We would uh, have this vision for flourishing in the world. And we would love God and love our neighbor using our gifts, our talents, our abilities to love him and bring glory to him. That's power at its best. But this is not what we see. All around us is a distorted vision of power. Instead of using our gifts, talents, abilities to love God and love others, leading to the flourishing of humankind, we use them to get ahead, or in some cases the worst cases, to push others down. We hoard our power. And with a distorted view of power and couple that with a distorted view of people, that's how you get 21 million slaves in the world. Because it's impossible to love people, and it's impossible to serve them with a distorted view of power. We're in a series called Rhythms, in which we're looking at the rhythms that make up spiritual life. And we're finishing today with this idea of the rhythm of service. And I would argue that we long... For a people, for people themselves, to properly wield their power for the good of others. That's what we long for. We celebrate it. That's why we go to see 50,000 Marvel movies. Because we celebrate. We want to see people wield their power for the good of others. And this is what makes the story of Christianity, especially the story of Jesus, so compelling. Because at the center of the Christian story is power that's coupled with love. Andy Crouch says again, power is nothing worse than nothing without love. And this is exactly what we see in our text today. There are deep theological and ethical truths that re-envision the way that we love people. But in the book of John, it's a unique gospel. It's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in my own quiet time, I've been slowly walking through this gospel, sometimes just looking at a couple of verses a day. And a couple of months ago, I, I read John 1:18. And if you know John chapter 1, you will know that this is one of the deepest sections of any gospel. It declares who Jesus is in eternity's past. It talks about this relationship between God and the Father and how he and Jesus came to dwell among us. But if you look at verse 18 in chapter 1 it says this in NIV it says no one has ever seen God but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known it hit me that this verse as it concludes this great paragraph is key to understanding the book of John as a whole that we know that Jesus is fully God. He has the very same power, the very same abilities, and the very same love. We know from Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 that Jesus himself is the very imprint of God, holds the supreme position like God would, is due worship and glory as God would. He is eternal, unlimited power, unlimited glory. And this is what's so unimaginable about his incarnation, that Jesus would come as a human being. Because here this verse tells us in John 1, 18 that Jesus reveals to us in human form the very nature of God that he was not ab- we were not able to fully comprehend and now Jesus in God in human form becomes the very example the very imprint of God And Jesus reveals to us the very nature of God. So when we see Jesus act, you can trust that everything Jesus does, God would do, because Jesus is God. So when he speaks, he speaks as God would. When he acts, he acts as if God would. When he elevates women in John chapter 4 to in a society that makes them less than human, that is the act of God. When he clears the temples because people are degrading the worship space, that is the act of God. When he brings out the best wine and elevates a feast in John chapter 2, that is the act of God. And when he washes the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13, that is the act of God. All of this is revealing the power of God, giving a peek to the restoration to come. And in John John chapter 13, we see a shift in the ministry of Jesus. He is exiting his public ministry... And he's entering into what's called the discipleship sermons. Over the next four chapters, five chapters, you're going to see Jesus talk a whole lot. And he's going to end in John chapter 17 with one of the most beautiful prayers to ever exist. You see God the Father and God the Son speaking with one another. And one of the greatest parts about John 17 is that he prays for you. You're a part of that prayer. I just think that's really encouraging. And over the next four chapters, he's going to be speaking to his disciples in private, leading to his eventual death on the cross. And this is his first act in John chapter 13, his first sermon, and it comes with an illustration. So in verse 1, we see the timing of the event. This is the third Passover mentioned in the book of John, which is how we understand that Jesus' ministry lasted three years. And this is significant, this Passover event is significant because in the coming days, Jesus would actually become the Passover lamb, the one who would essentially be slaughtered so that we could be cleansed. But it continues in verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Does anybody see that as kind of an awkward, like, it's hard to read? It's because he's setting the stage. John is setting the stage for what's about to happen because Jesus knows that this is now time. Over the the course of the book of John, you see Jesus say, it's not my time. The hour is not here. The hour is not here. And now it is time. The hour has come. And the reason he came, the mission he was seeking to fulfill is now here. Uh, But here's what we must understand. That it says that Jesus was going to depart out of this world to the Father. But it is only through Jesus' death that he will return to the Father, and it is only through Jesus' death that we will be reconciled to the Father. And Jesus summarizes, and excuse me, John summarizes Jesus' ministry as saying this: that he he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. One commentator summarizes it like this: that Jesus loved them right up to the very finish, perfectly. Jesus had a moment, a, a huge burden on his shoulders. He knows what's coming. He takes this moment with the people that he spent the last three years with and he reveals to them the very heart of the Father. And he's gonna complete his mission here in a couple of chapters, but he doesn't cast off those he built a relationship with. In fact, what you see in verses two and three is that one of his disciples is going to betray him, which Jesus knows. And notice this verse 3 Jesus knew this is NIV that the Father had put all things under his power in his hands and that he had come from God and was returning to God that's a position statement that God that Jesus came from God up here glory up here and he's going back to where he started Don't miss this, that Jesus knows what's coming to him, the cross. He knows who will betray him, Judas. And he has the power at his disposal. And his right place, the rightly earned place that he has, is one right by the Father, the supreme being of the universe. One could expect the next couple of verses to say that he cast out Judas, took his rightful place on the throne, and said, worship me. That is not what we see Jesus do. Because what we see Jesus do at the risk of being repetitive is reveal the heart of the Father. Because the very next verse, verse 4, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and he, he poured into water a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And there's many commentators, many pastors, many scholars that have tried to put in perspective, as I tried to do this week, to modern ears and to modern eyes of what we're seeing here. I mean, Jesus is in the middle of a meal he derobes, takes a towel, and wraps it around his waist, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And, you know, you could think about a, you know, there's lots of examples that people use, like think about the most powerful, prestigious person that you could think of coming into your house, and you, you have a meal with them. You know, I was thinking about, you know, somebody that I respect, somebody that's way above my class coming into my, my home, and I cooked them my best meal, and You know, in the middle of the meal, they go, Hey, which one of your kids' uh, toilets are they potty training on? Oh, um, the middle bathroom. All right, I'm going to go get to my hands and knees and clean that real quick for you. You know, the one that they haven't really got the aim down yet, all right? But even that illustration is silly. Because it doesn't quite do it. Because what I hope you've heard from me is that this task is beyond Jesus, not only because of who he is, but culturally. Because this act is inconceivable to the disciples. This is a task reserved for the lowest of the lowest, Peers didn't wash their, one another's feet except of rare occasions. Some Jews even believed that this act was below Jewish, Jewish slaves, only to be reserved for Gentile slaves. Yet, don't miss this either. Jesus derobes, ties the towel around his waist. He is physically and vividly adopting the form of a servant. This was not just Jesus getting comfortable to get low. This is what a servant would have worn. He wraps the towel around his waist, adopting the dress of a slave. And then he begins to wash the feet of men whom he loves and one that's about to betray him. And of course, they are embarrassed. Which leads to the words of Peter, you're going to wash my feet? In verse 7, Jesus answers a It's a really good answer because he points to something that's going to happen in the future. He says, what I'm doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will. You will understand. Which leads to the question, after what? Frederick Bruner states that this action is a theological picture of Jesus' whole ministry. The Apostle Paul would say... In Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it says, Though he was in the form of God, that, very, that form means nature, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by, com- by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. After what? After his death. Here in this scene, we see the gospel displayed. Frederick Bruner continues, he says, He takes off his purely divine prerogatives from heaven. He puts on a human towel of earthly service to his world and prepares to wash us, his people, and his cleansing crucifixion, depicted here as the foot washing. Isn't Jesus' whole foot washing action, his incarnation, his atonement, the gospel in picture form? This quote made me cry, so just let you know. He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped round himself a towel. He who pours the water into the rivers and the pools tipped water into a basin. And he, before every knee bends, before heaven and earth and under the earth, knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. Because I hope you understand how Philippians 2 ends right there. It said every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. This scene is deeply theological. Jesus states that unless I wash you, you have no part with me. It reveals a God that stoops down to us, who humbles himself, who deals mercifully with the righteous and the sinner, who uses his power coupled with love to serve. In the foot washing, it represents Jesus, that Jesus himself came to deliver It reveals only Jesus can cleanse us, only God can wash us, and it comes in a way that is undeserved, unmerited, and in a way that will vividly demean our Savior. You have to understand that the disciples were were laying down on their left side with their feet up, so when Jesus knelt down to wash the feet of his disciples, the people would have been face-to-face with Jesus. Jesus. Right by some feet, some nasty feet. And when Paul says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, this is what he means. You'll understand after Peter. So here's where we begin. We begin by first seeing how Jesus responds to our powerless state. We see how theologically that we are covered in dirt and the only cleansing that will do the trick is the cleansing work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the theological truth here is that Christ lays down his power for the good of the powerless. It is Jesus who stoops down to us. It is Jesus who acts on behalf of the Father to reveal his true heart. So the reality is, if you have not wrestled with the very fact that our Lord Jesus Christ stoops down to wash the dirt off you, then there is nothing that can truly, properly motivate you to do the same for others. Why in the world would I go to people that are hurting? Why in the world would I stoop down to people that smell, people that don't have everything that I have? Why would I lay down my power? It doesn't make sense. You see, there is no hope of the rhythm of service in your life if you don't understand the gospel because you will continually be bringing it back to yourself. You see, the gospel truth of the foot washing leads to the gospel ethic of the foot washing. Because there's an ethic here. And we want to skip to this. How can I serve people? Great question. We're trying to answer that today, right? Right? But if you don't, if you're not properly motivated, if you don't understand what Jesus has done for you, then that service will eventually peter out. It it will eventually go away. When things get hard, when things get messy, it just won't continue. So when Jesus continues in verse 12, he says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. Notice the theological language. After he had served us, right, he puts, goes back to the Father in a way, right? He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed you, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus puts on his uh, outer garments back on. He resumes his place and asks them a question, as he often does. Do you understand? It's a clarifying question. Because you've got to think This is their leader. This is who they've been following. And he just performed an action that would have been a a mind-blowing action to them. And this question is the same question for you. Do you understand... Because Jesus is saying that I am giving you a new pattern of living, and this should change the very directory of your life, because you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and I am those things, but you know what will happen if you actually believe that I am teacher and I'm Lord? You will follow my example. You know, one of the, I work with Gen Z a lot, which is, uh, you know, teenagers, and one of the biggest uh, Bones that they have to pick with our culture is when people say they believe in something and then do the opposite. No authenticity, right? So that's why this generation is quick to say, This is who I am. That's why they do that. They feel that that's authentic. That's not a bad thing. We just need to replace that with who they are in Christ, right? But one of the problems that the world has with Christians is they often look nothing like their Christ. And it seems as if we have divorced belief and practice. It seems as if a week doesn't pass by without some celebrity pastor or some, some even local church pastor. doesn't it have to be a big name about their latest abuse of power or him having an extramarital affair and the amount of people that have, have taken the shrapnel from, from these explosive events are just too many to count and they reject the Savior that would bend a knee to cleanse them because of a leader that abuses the power that's been given to them. And then they see Christians, they see Christians, does not have to be a leader, abusing their power Not loving certain people because they're a certain class or a certain politic. Jesus would say this way By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. You know where he said that? John 13. This is how people will recognize you. This is how people will know that you follow me by your love. Follow my example. And one of the ways to make the gospel compelling, y'all, compelling. Everybody wants to know how to evangelize. Tell people about Jesus, but live as Jesus would live. And here's what this looks like. When Jesus says, follow my example, do as I do, he's not necessarily talking and going around and saying, hey, can I wash your feet, brother? He's referring to a position that he took as a servant. It fulfills the mission that he came to be as a servant in Mark 10, 45. And one of the reasons or one of the things that Jesus feared for his church and later elaborated on by his half-brother James was partiality. It's this idea of these positions of power getting special treatment in the church. Jesus himself pushed against this at every turn because who did he elevate? How did he come into the world? Who did he elevate? Who did he spend time with? Who did he love? Who did he touch? Who did he choose to be his disciples? How did he act in this scene? Jesus preached against the elevation of self over others his entire ministry and lived it. So here's a big truth for you to understand. It is impossible to serve someone with pure motives if you think that you're better than them. There's just not another, there's not a fancy way to say that. And if you have a right view of the gospel, you'll have a right view of the self knowing that you're dirty enough to need cleansing, but loved enough that Jesus would come to die for you. And rooted in that thought is the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 9 through 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that last verse because it got a little competitive kick in it right it's like you know i think i'm going to outdo how much i can give my brother over here i'm giving meal one day a week three days a week prime rib right no but philippians 1 or philippians 2 1 through 3 it says, therefore, if, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. This is, this is the verse. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. If you continue in that verse, it's talking about Jesus. It's the verse that we just read. It ends in obedient, uh, uh, him following God's will to be obedient to the point of death. And this is what kind of action that the gospel urges, that you have been served, so go serve others. Jesus stooped down to you, so you stoop down to others. And this is the kind of power that's coupled with love that we long for, and it finds its harmony in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, when we talk about the rhythm of service, what we're talking about is really three things. Because we began by stating that humans have a power problem. But power is not the problem, it's the way that we use it. And if this story teaches us anything, it's that Christ wields his power for the good of other people to serve them in their deepest need. And this is the example that he sets for us. This is what he says Do as I do. And to refuse this, to say no, is what Jesus would say, then you're assuming that the servant is better than the master. You're doing, you're refusing something that I, Jesus, and I think I've hopefully explained to you who Jesus is, said yes to. And even more than that, verse 17 would point to the fact that if you do it, you'll be satisfied. And I find it interesting That Peter, one who had his feet washed by Jesus, said this in 1 Peter 4 8 through 11. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining, just as each one has received a gift. Use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Christ Jesus in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So three very quick things to build a rhythm of service in your life from the text. And the first one is this, wield your influence, your position, your power, and your giftings for the good of others. What has God given you? How has God gifted you? There's a slew of people here this morning, some rich, some not so rich. God has given you everything you have for the stewardship of someone else and his glory. How are you using that? What voice do you have that you can speak up for someone who has no voice? What platform do you have that you can speak up for someone who has literally, literally no platform? Know your giftings. Know how God has uniquely equipped you. That's why we're doing this. That's why we have so many ministries to be able to serve people because everybody is different. You know, there's small ministries in this church that don't get a lot of pub, but they serve people. I had a great conversation with a couple of senior adults this week about our noteworthy ministry. All they do is write until their arm gives out verses to people that need them. And you wouldn't, you would not believe some of the stories that they have. That would just say, you know what, someone came with me and I just wrote them a verse that said, you know, whatever it is. And it served them that day. And it's not for cred. It's not for, you know, look at me. It's just because they want to love people. Think about kids' ministry and bereavement and hospitality and prayer. All of this. Wield your influence, position and power, and giftings for the good of others. Secondly, serve those beneath you. And I put beneath in quotes. Because there's... Theologically, there's nobody beneath you. But for much of its existence, Christianity has been paradoxical. Christians were in the minority of the culture, yet gained ground by serving and loving without partiality those around them. And this is what made following Jesus so compelling in the early days. When people were throwing away their babies over cliffs, literally, Christ's followers said, we're going to care for the orphans. When marriage was seen as a transaction, Paul said, love your wives as as you love yourself. And here's what we often want to do. This is a harsh reality. This is the hardest thing I'm going to say to you today. We often want to love people without getting involved. We want to throw our money at something without getting messy. That is not a bad thing to give money to something. But we, when the going gets tough, We often run. You know, uh, my wife and I are in in foster care, and one of the things I've learned is that the closer you get to mess, the messier you get. It's like giving your two-year-old some ice cream. You're just going to get sticky. Like, you just are. Just deal with it. And the problem is, is we want to love people without getting messy. And that's just not the reality because here's, here is the reality. What if FBCVA was known for getting involved in the mess of someone's life? We claim to be pro-life. What if we had a culture here at this church where a pregnant teenager did not feel shame, as most of them do, but they could walk into the walls of our church and be like, you know what, they're going to love me. That's pro-life. That's pro-life. What if our community knew us as a a church body that said, yes, you call me teacher and Lord, but do as I do. And lastly, root your gospel service in the gospel story. You know, uh, Richard Dawkins said this in Time Magazine a couple years ago obviously not pro-Christian, but he said, I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of all that grandeur of the supernatural. They strike me as narrow-minded. If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian or any of any religion has ever proposed. He's kind of true. He's kind of right. It doesn't make sense That the creator of the universe would stoop down to wash the feet of his disciples. And that's the point, right? That the way of Jesus will never make sense to people. The way up is... Down Yet we have a Savior that reveals the very heart of the Father. We have it on record that the Son of Man stooped down, took the form of a servant, washed the feet of his disciples, signifying his death and cleansing for us. And because of that, he says, do as I do. Lay down your power for the good of other people. And this is the whole idea of the Rhythm Series. It's a denial of self so that we can love God and love people and live in the kingdom in which God God is coming, right? That's what we're trying to do. So when we talk about rest and we talk about prayer and we talk about um, eating and drinking with people and inviting them into our house, it is not just so we get a little a badge, a golden sticker that says, good job. It's we're trying to replicate and do as Jesus does. And that starts with understanding that you have been cleansed. You see a Savior that gave up his power for you. So do as Jesus does. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in need. We ask that you would reveal places in our lives where we are hoarding power. Places in our lives, things that we own, that we have in an iron grip, refusing to give. For some of that, it could be our quote-unquote religion. I'm a good person. I don't need to be cleansed. Father, I pray that you would, would convict us, that you would show us a picture of your true heart, as you did in John 13 you stoop down for the needy, the powerless, the dirty. I pray that one person, one person, would see that truth, that feels a sense of guilt and shame for whatever they have done. I pray that they would just see the beauty of the gospel this morning. And God, I pray for our FBCVA family. I pray that we would not just be about talk. I pray that we would be people of action. That our practice backs up our doctrine. And that's what it means to live in a rhythm for you. I pray that our church would represent Jesus in a way that it never has before. I pray that we would do as Jesus does. And that starts with being extremely intentional about how we love people around us, getting into the mess of people's lives. And that could come with hurt, that could come with danger, that could come with a whole host of things. But God, I pray that we would find our true satisfaction, our true... Uh, true life in you. Father, we worship a God and serve a God that is worthy of all of our worship and service. But we also serve a God that served us. What a a crazy, incomprehensible thing. So as we think about ways this afternoon to, to serve your church, pray that we would do as Jesus does. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.